back to Crimes from the East, your weekly South Asian and Indian true crime podcast. I'm your host, Pia, and with me this week, I have Katie, another true crime enthusiast who will be taking this journey with me today. Hi, Katie. Hi, Pia. (laughs) Hope you're doing well and you're ready for some Desi true crime. Oh, by the way, do you know what the term Desi means? I do not. What does that mean? So the technical meaning of Desi is those belonging to the Indian subcontinent, technically Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, but it can extend to countries in that general area. So that's what the word Desi means, and I'm probably going to use it a lot in this podcast. So I thought I'd just bring that up. No, that was really good to know. Thanks. (laughs) So today we're talking about the infamous Stone Man murders. Have you heard about this case at all? I have not. Yeah, so if you look up Indian true crime or Indian serial killers, this one will definitely be in like the top three lists of Indian cases. So this one is actually an old case. It's from 1980s and also in 2000s. 2013 or so, but the killer was actually never found. And that is why everyone's so intrigued about this case. So let's go. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to hear about this, but question. Okay. Why were they called the Stone Man Killers? Oh, you'll you'll learn. Give me five okay. minutes. You Give me five minutes <laughs> okay. and we'll be there. <laughs> I'm so sorry. All right. We'll find out. As you know, this case starts in Mumbai. Uh, which is India's maximum city. That's what it's called, maximum city, Mumbai. In 1985, it had a population of around 12 million uh, residents, which is pretty dense if you think about it for like, you know, a tiny, tiny city. Um, So what is a maximum city? Is a maximum city like a a capital? uh, that's That's just what it's called. You know, like you have the Big Apple and Windy City and... Oh, so it was just uh like the nickname for it. Just a nickname. Oh, okay. Yeah, maximum city, because everything that happens there is, like, to the max. To the max. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, if if you get success, it's to the max. If you hit the rocks, it's, you know, to the max. I love this. I did not know it was called the maximum city, and I'm into it. Uh Uh-huh. It's intense. It's intense. Like, people from all over India who are kind of aspiring to make it, uh, that's where they head to. They head to Mumbai. It's kind of like the New York City of India. You know, the big place, yeah. So a quarter of Mumbai's then 12 million population and now 18 million population lives under very harsh conditions. Temporary tenements and slum settlements, as you must have seen online, because that seems to be the one thing that's always highlighted when they talk about India, you know, the slums, the slums. There's actually something called slum tourism, where they take oh. tourists to see slums because it's such a, it's a culture shock, right? You don't you don't see things like that uh, in the Western mm, world. See, I've so. never been a huge fan of like the poverty porn tourism thing. Right. Like that just, it's not my cup of tea. Me neither. I'm not a fan. I am not a fan. <laughs> but yeah, so a quarter of Mumbai's population lives under those harsh conditions where they have no running water and no private bathrooms. So they have communal bathrooms. Just, it just, you know, it sounds like a very tough life. 
And it may sound like it couldn't get worse than living in those temporary arrangements, but it actually does because another quarter of the population actually lives right on the streets of Mumbai. So some of those workers, they, they are day laborers or cooks or waitstaff in small street-side restaurants and, and many other such ad hoc jobs, right, that pay just enough for them to survive. It's virtually impossible for them to be able to afford any kind of roof above their heads. To them, the streets of Mumbai is what they call home, and all they need is a sheet to lay on and call it a night under the twinkling stars that never really seem to align in their favor. So on the streets are thousands of vagrants, rag pickers. So do you know what rag pickers are? I do not. What is a rag picker? Yeah, it's a term used quite often uh, in Indian media. And I, I, I thought I'd explain that. So basically, these are destitute, you know, poverty-ridden people who they beg for a living or collect trash off of the streets and sell them to, I don't want to call them recycling centers, but that's probably the closest reference I can give you um, okay. to explain it. You know, kind of like how you collect cans and sell them to a rec recycling center, right? For like pennies and cents and stuff. So, sure. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like what it is. They make just enough money maybe to grab one meal a day. So, you know, like it is with life everywhere else, there is a strict hierarchy of command and territorial claim over who gets the prime spots to sleep on the streets every night. If you take a drive through the streets of Mumbai tonight, you'll see people sleeping on the pavements, under bridges and overpasses, and even on the road dividers. These homeless people on the streets, they have come here from all over India to try and make it, and they hang on by a thread trying to survive in the rat race of maximum city, Mumbai. <laughs> Why I'm describing all of this is because the homeless are truly nameless, right? They're nameless, they're vulnerable in some sense, and crimes against them often go unreported. Um, mm -hmm. Police departments are totally apathetic to their problems, right? Because they're nameless, they, they don't have a dime to their name, and they don't have any clout, right? There's no one advocating for them. And so, right, so why bother? Why bother? Exactly. For the record, though, I think cops should absolutely bother. I'm not like saying that's okay. <laughs> right. I think we get it. We get it. But it's yeah. just the harsh reality of, you know, of how things I just wanted be. to go on record being like, why bother protecting <laughs> poor people? Like, no, that's not what I meant. But like, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Like, why? Yeah. Why bother? I mean, that's, um, yeah, we're talking from the point of view of the apathetic. Uh, you know, right. um, actors in this story. Um, but yeah, so no matter what the hardships are for these millions of residents in India's maximum city, life just goes on, you know, just fine. Nothing really phases the hardy people of Mumbai. It doesn't phase them today and it didn't phase them in 1985 either. But all of this was about to change in a heartbeat. Because you see, there was a steadily rising body count of murder victims in the city that had the Mumbai police at their wit's end. So in the summer of 1985, started a series of brutal and horrific murders that rocked the city to its core. It seemed like every few months, 
the streets of Sion and King Circle, which are two very prominent areas in Mumbai, would wake up to a gruesome sight of a dead body with a head completely smashed in by a heavy rock or a slab of concrete which lay right there, bloody and silent. It was an unwilling witness to this unspeakable horror. So, yeah, I mean, do you think that if the cops went from not caring to suddenly this like gripping the whole city, do you think they cared because they were worried it would escalate to more prominent or like quote unquote respectable families? Or do you think they cared because they were worried that the people living in destitute would end up rising up and demanding action? This is a personal opinion because I have no idea how things officially work. But in my opinion, I think the only thing that would be fueling the police to take any action would be public pressure and the fear of fingers being pointed at them and saying, you guys aren't doing your jobs. You're being ineffective. It looks bad, right? Murders are never good for any city. So at some point, they do have to affect tourism. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So the police would document the cases and just move on with their day. Like, okay, another nameless street person's been murdered, whatever. Just write it, just note it and move on. They couldn't trace the identities of most of the victims as they were homeless and nobody would show up to officially claim the bodies. And they got no help from the other homeless uh, people in that area because they were understandably super wary of working with the police now it isn't uncommon yeah, and probably scared of retribution you know like yeah oh if we help we might be the next victim not only that but you know it's not uncommon for them to be picked up by the police on suspicion of random crimes and petty theft etc so why would they risk drawing attention to themselves by coming forward mm. and try to share whatever little information that they might actually have about the victims right so if something yeah. happens say something happens in the scion area some you know like a store gets broken into the first thing the cops are going to do is round up most of you know the people who are living on the streets in that area and squeeze them for information right I mean, a lot of times it's pretty brutal, like they will beat them and there's all kinds of police brutality that goes on unofficially to try and get information out of these people. So the relationship between uh, those on the streets and the police is, I I would say, non-existent. So when did the police start to think it was like one person or that they were all connected? The murders continued on one by one till late 1987. So in a span of two years, the victim count went up to 12, 12. And it was only slowly by like the sixth or seventh case uh, did like a police officer who isn't named publicly. So I have I have no idea what their name is. Uh, he's the one who kind of connected the dots and he thought, OK, so I this is the sixth case of a homeless person being smashed to death with a huge rock and no one's seen him so he he's the one who connected the dots and figured it out that this is the work of one man Mm -hmm. and actually there was one lucky survivor or unlucky survivor who escaped by the skin of his teeth he woke up to the terrifying image of the stone man with his arms raised above his head 
ready to bring down the heavy rock on his head. Oh, okay. So that's why he's called the Stone Man because yep. it was he smashed your head in with a stone. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So someone woke up to that. Somebody woke up and he was like looming over him, like you know, like a dark shadow looming um, looming above him with a huge rock in his arms and just ready to drop it right on him. Just imagine that. Like I get chills just thinking about it. So that person survived. Yes, he survived. But see, all of this takes place in very dark and dimly lit areas of Mumbai. So unfortunately, he had no identifiable details that he could share about the stone man, which is just unfortunate. I got back up for a hot second. Like, Mm -hmm. how did he survive? So because he saw the stone man about to like drop the rock on his head, he moved a little bit to the side and it hit him on the side of the head instead of smashing him right in his face. And then what? The guy just ran away? Yep, he ran away. He ran away because this guy started screaming, right? He scre- he screamed out and uh, the other people on the streets woke up and they came to his aid. Hold on. Hold, hold, hold on. I, I, I have multiple questions now. So one, <laughs> go ahead. the stone man... Killed people in their sleeps then. Yes. Okay. And two, he did this around other people. Did no one wake up to like a rock hitting the ground? No. Like my rabbit can't even jump on my bed without waking me up. So like <laughs> like if, if somebody slammed a rock hard enough onto the ground near me mm-hmm. to smash somebody's head in, how did that not wake anybody else up? I mean, this is happening in a big city, right? Out in the open where you where I mean, everything's not super silent. There's cars and trucks and whatnot, you know, in the background. Right. And uh, I there's mean, I dogs live, barking I mean, everywhere. Yeah, I live in a city. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I live in it. There's constant, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. fire trucks and police cars and people, mm-hmm. well, pre-pandemic, people outside. Like, I would still wake up if a rock was slammed onto the ground near <laughs> me, which kind of begs the question like how many people did have information on this person but were just afraid to come forward good point i mean you could be totally right because all we all we know is what is on record so if there were witnesses who saw more than than what's officially recorded they definitely did not come forward oh my gosh and the other thing to, to note is that the stone man specifically sought out people that were sleeping by themselves and not in groups. So people do kind of gather and three or four would sleep together in a corner, like especially if they're friends or work together or whatever. But those weren't the targets of this guy. This killer specifically chose victims who were by themselves in an isolated area And that's why, I guess, he was able to commit these crimes. Now, earlier you mentioned that there was like that hierarchy among like, you know, the better sleeping spots or like where you could sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who were sleeping alone, would they have been higher or lower on this hierarchy? In my opinion, again, my opinion, it was probably probably people who were newcomers in the area who didn't really have associates and friends in that they could hang out with. And if I had to make a guess, it would be someone lower in that hierarchy. Mm. So just sleeping out on the streets without the threat of a serial killer is already a a scary proposition, right? So you want to be in a group. So the fact that 
these victims were alone probably meant that they were either new to the area or lower in that hierarchy and Mm -hmm. didn't have a support system of any kind. Which worked well for the serial killer, right? That's what he wanted. He wanted yeah. to do this job in peace and not have anyone around to kind of interrupt him. So he killed 12 people over the course of three years? Two and a half years. Two and so a half 1985 years. is when the first case was reported. And by the end of 87, it stopped. Now, were they like men and women or were they primarily men? Like what... Who, did, was there any connection other than the people being homeless and alone that stood out? None that's reported. So all of my research comes from, you know, the almighty Google and whatever <laughs> I could find on Google. And the frustrating part is that not enough details are found on this case, especially the Mumbai part of the case, right? I couldn't find names. I couldn't find details. I couldn't find ages or or even the gender of any of the victims. It's assumed that they were all male victims at this point. And yeah, that's all I had I had to work with for this case, which is very frustrating. That is frustrating. So then what? Like he just stopped? Like suddenly the murder stopped? Yeah. Let me get there. We're going to get there. So I just wanted to put a disclaimer out there that Mumbai is actually a very safe city to live in. I mean, it sounds unlikely after we're talking about these horrific serial killings, but Officially, the city has a crime rate that's lower than the state it's in. So the state of Maharashtra collectively has a higher crime rate than that of Mumbai City. So it's actually, you know, it's not like a a horrible place to live in or anything. People there love it. They wouldn't move. They wouldn't move out of there. Yeah, I mean, that'd be the same if we were talking about, you know, like U.S. serial killers. It's not like there's a serial killer on every corner. But like, you can definitely make it sound (laughs) that way if we're only talking about like serial killers from New York, you know? People travel all over the city at all times of the day, you know, for work and study and stuff. So life carries on. It's it's not a bad place to live. I just wanted to put that disclaimer out in case there are, you know, people who live in Mumbai. They're called Mumbai cars listening. And please, please don't, please don't send me hate mail. I love Mumbai. Okay. I lived there for a big part of my childhood and I have nothing bad to say about it personally. So just wanted to put that out. All right, so getting back to the case. So it's not as if the police departments are inundated with murder cases and stuff that they can't really spend resources on crimes of this type. But like we discussed earlier, I suspect that the socioeconomic status of these victims played a heavy role in the lack of a more thorough investigation and follow-up by the police departments. And in the same breath, like, I can't blame the Mumbai police either, because especially back in 1985, there wasn't any DNA technology or like a national database of citizens that they could cross check against to identify the victims. So I really don't know if it would have been possible for them to identify the victims, even, you know, as hard as they might have tried. Mm -hmm. The narrow dark lanes of the city are just so easy to hide in for any sinister criminal of the night, they could disappear in minutes. So even catching them, it's not like, I can't blame the police for that. Like, it would be easy to just kind of sink back into the shadows and not be caught. Uh, The people of Mumbai, not just those who lived on the streets, 
But, you know, the regular people of Mumbai, everyone was gripped by these murders. Families feared going out at night and they dreaded reading the newspapers because they're like, we're going to open the newspaper and there's going to be another murder in there, right? Mm -hmm. The ones who did sleep out in the open, they started to sleep in bigger groups for safety and would have designated, uh, what do you call them, like watchouts or lookouts who would mm. stay up all night and make sure like the group is safe. Yeah. So it did affect, it did affect, uh, you know, life in Mumbai for those two years. Yeah, go ahead. You wanted to say something? Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a questions. <laughs> um, so you said 12 victims over two and a half years. What, were they equally spaced out? So there are no dates. There are no dates for these crimes, but it does say every month. So every few months. So I'm just going to assume every two months there was a murder. Well, I'm just wondering if like, you know, if it was suddenly stopped, right? I can't help but wonder if maybe there was some vigilante justice that took place. And if maybe the last victim was actually the killer. Huh. The motives for these murders really is anyone's guess. Yeah. Since the identities of the victims were never really like determined, we won't know if the killings were related at all. Like if if one killing was related to the other, if the murderer was actually killed as part of, you know, a vigilante uh, stakeout or something, we we just, we will never know, which is alarming. Mystery. I guess that's why. Yeah, it's alarming. Yeah. I mean, at least the Mumbai police figured out that they were connected and that they, they were now in the path of a complete psychopath. Well, did the police ever have any leads? Yeah, off the record, there were rumors that the official number of victims was actually somewhere around 25. But the official number was kept low to try and kind of, you know, salvage some reputation of the Mumbai police. And so it doesn't it doesn't sully their name. But of course, this is just conjecture. So we can only consider what's on record, which is 12 victims. Now, after some hue and cry from the public, the police did round up some of the usual suspects from those areas of Scion and King Circle, uh, informants, drug peddlers, petty criminals, and the likes, in an effort to squeeze out at least some information to use for the case, but they got nothing. Hmm. However, as a result of this roundup, what they did get is a lull in the killings. So... After the, they did the roundup and kind of made a big deal about it, things stopped. So by mid-1988, the murders completely stopped, much to the relief of the people of Mumbai and the Mumbai police, who, after 12 murders and one unfortunate surviving witness, still had no clue about the Stone Man serial killer. But finally, Mumbai had freed itself from the clutches of this alleged psychopath. Or so they think. Or so they think. So what do you think? You think it was the work of one guy or a group of people or, or just different people using the same MO to cover up their personal motives? Mm, like a copycat? If, if you're just using a random rock off the street, it could be anyone. Like it's not as if it's a, it's a gun which can be tied to a single person. That's a good point. The murder weapon is completely random, anonymous, and untraceable, really. I I think it's I don't know. From what I from what you've told, I can't help but feel like it's one person. 
and that they were taken care of by the populations, especially if they were having stakeouts, like not stakeouts, but like if they had larger groups and people staying up to like watch and protect the group and they were taking shifts, then it's hard to believe that they the population didn't know more than they were letting on. Right. That is that is interesting. I I wish like we had, you know, some kind of a cold case unit or private investigators or something who could dig deeper into this. But can you imagine trying to find the people who lived on the streets in 1985? It would be nearly impossible. That would be so hard. It's absolutely impossible. They're not going to be on the same corners and streets in 2021. They're probably either deceased or moved on in life, moved Mm -hmm. to a different place. Maybe they, you know, they bettered their lives for all we know. Right. But yeah, it's just because of the nature of the victims and the community around them, it's just impossible to kind of go back and try and solve this case. So is this something people still talk about in Mumbai or is it kind of just like forgotten about? I would say it's forgotten, but but not completely. If you talk about, hey, you know, have you heard about any serial killer in India? This is probably the number one case people who who lived in Mumbai at that time would bring up because, you know, it was looming over everyone's heads, right? Like they were consumed by this, by the fear of the stone man. Even if they weren't in the path of the stone man, if they weren't living on the streets, there was still this fear that someone so crazed and so cruel was hunting on the streets of Mumbai. It it kind of feels like he's violating your, you know, your happy place, your safe space, your city. Well, I mean, did they did the cops release any kind of like profile? Like, I know anytime the the there's a series of murders here, it's like oh, the victims were, you know, these were like crimes of passion or just anger or just random. Mm-hmm. Like, did was, so they were brutally murdered by being smashed in the head with a rock, but did anything else happen? So, Katie, if you thought that this is the end of the story, you'd be wrong. Okay. <laughs> because starting sometime in 1989... Similar brutal uh, murders began to happen in the city of Kolkata in the state of West Bengal. Now, how far away from Mumbai is that? I think it's like 1,200 miles apart, and it's in the northeast of India. So, yeah, Mumbai's on the west coast and West Bengal's on the east eastern coast. So, I guess I'm just thinking like, okay, is that like a 12-hour drive? Or are we talking he had to fly to there? If we think it's the same person, if we think they're connected, like. The most common way that people travel in India, at least, you know, larger distances like this, is through train. Mm. So, yeah, we've traveled from Mumbai to West Bengal quite a bit uh, since I did have family that lived there. And it took two nights, two nights and two Mm -hmm. and a half days to get there by train. Okay. So two years later, similar murders start popping up. Across the country. Across the country on the eastern coast in the Howrah Bridge area of the 300-year-old capital city of West Bengal, Kolkata. So were the victims like the same? Was it like the homeless population with a rock when they're sleeping? Mm-hmm, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So the first officially reported murder occurred in the June of 1989. 
I seem to find a lot more details about the murders in Kolkata than I did about the murders in Mumbai. Mm. And I am so thankful for that. But surprisingly, the most comprehensive source of information that I could find on these murders was archived articles from the LA Times written by Mark Feynman and one by the Orlando Sentinel. So you can imagine that these cases were not only gripping Uh, you know, the population of India, but had made their way all over to the U.S. as well. I mean, if L.A. Times is covering this, it must have been big news. So how did, like, what happened then? Yeah. I'm going to just read out a couple of uh, notes from that article. So Mark from the L.A. Times says, the stone man's first victim in Kolkata, after all, was a woman who had made her living by selling moonshine on the street. And his second victim was a beggar who collected off uh, trash off the sidewalks. And he was killed on July 4th, exactly one month after the first. Mm. The MO was the same. The victim profile was the same. People who lived on the streets but were sleeping by themselves. The victims were found with their heads smashed in and a huge rock uh, lay next to the body. Now, these rocks were not like tiny, small stones you could just pick up and fling around. They weighed like 50 to 60 pounds. Oh, so this person had to be strong. Like they had to be like uh-huh. well fit. So did the Calcutta police work with the Mumbai police? They eventually did consult with them because by this time, the case was so famous. The Calcutta police kind of didn't take too long to put two and two together and... Um, They figured that if it isn't the same guy, it might be a copycat who knows about the original crimes in Mumbai. Mm. But of course, when the first few cases popped up, it's not as if they got right on it. Yeah, they're like, this is exactly the same. Yeah. No, it didn't happen. It was the same. It was the same story as it is, you know, as it was in Mumbai. Sanjoy Basak, a senior reporter from The Telegraph, says, and I quote, Apart from the pavement dwellers themselves, no one was bothered about it much. Pavement dwellers don't even have voting rights, so nothing was really done. By the time the third victim was found, the Kolkata police linked the crimes and was now convinced it was all the work of a single crazed psychopath, who they now named as the Stone Man Killer. So the name Stone Man Killer actually originated in Kolkata and not in Mumbai. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And it appears that the cops in Kolkata really did try their best to solve the case. They deployed hundreds of constables all over the city, especially at night, to patrol the dark lanes of the city during the early hours of 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. when the killer typically operated. Hmm. The pressure from the public uh, of the city was immense. And there emerged departmental politics between two police officials in the form of a race to catch the stone man. So at the time, the chief of police, Prasoon Mukherjee, and Deputy Commissioner Rajpal Singh, they had opposing theories about the killer and how to catch him. DCP or Deputy Commissioner Singh, he created the detailed profile of a killer. So remember you were talking about like a profile? Mm -hmm. DCP Singh did create one. He theorized that the killer is a methodical, highly intelligent, well-built, tall man, able to blend into the crowd at a minute's notice. The killer was propelled by a deep-seated hatred for the beggars and mentally ill dwellers on the streets. This was a profile that DCP Singh created. 
I wonder why they think that the like I wonder why they think he was highly intelligent. Like the rest of the profile, okay, I like I get, but like what exactly made them be like this man must be highly intelligent? I think the fact that he was able to sink back into the shadows and he wasn't caught, I think maybe that's what made them think he's intelligent. Because if you're simply crazed and in that state of hatred and anger in that moment, you might not be able to figure out how to escape. But if you're cold, calm and collected and you have your plan set out in your head, like I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to bash the, bash his head and then run off in this direction. Mm. All while, you know, there's hundreds of constables patrolling the area, mind you. So so he must have been pretty, well, I mean, I mean, I don't know about highly intelligent, but he was definitely organized. Yeah, organized. At least that's sure, what I think. But like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mr. Mukherjee, who was the opposing um, police official on this case, so he supposed that some form of tantric black magic rituals uh, involving human sacrifice may have been the driving force behind these brutal slaves. What? Mm-hmm. Why would he I mean, think that's creepy. that? <laughs> so the murders had all occurred on either Saturday or Tuesday night, which were considered sacred days for the goddess Kali. Goddess Kali is often worshipped by tantric followers as a powerful slayer of demons and a bringer of justice of sorts. And I don't know why he thought this was the case, but... That was his profile. I mean, it's creepy and... (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's creepy, but it could have also just been those were his days off. It just seems like... It just seems really like... like, I don't know, like a stretch, you know? Mm -hmm. He was reaching for sure. Yeah, like you had nothing else to go off of. Like, Like if somebody in like... I don't know, in the U.S. just killed people on Sundays because that was their day off. And then suddenly someone was like, oh, they must be Christian and like sacrificing them <laughs> for because this is like Sunday's Jesus's day or something. That's <laughs> that just seems like like a stretch, you know? I mean, to give you a little bit of context on that, it isn't it isn't like out of thin air that he pulled that theory There is a history of tantric black magic rituals in India, and they do happen. I mean, it's not common at all. It is very rare. There are cases that pop up every so many years where families are just completely blindsided and they follow superstition. They go to these tantric voodoo conmen godmen and they pay for these services for black magic to be performed like exorcisms and uh, rituals for attaining all kinds of wealth and power and you know relationships and things like that what makes him think this guy was doing that I think maybe the brutality of it all Mm -hmm. right like so usually serial killings are not that common in India I think the highest number of serial killers are in America but in India, it's not that common. Violent crimes that you would see would usually involve robbery, home invasion, or crimes of passion, things of that nature. But serial killings that were this brutal and macabre were not common. So I guess he kind of mm. he he kind of connected the dots. Like human sacrifice might be an answer since it's not something that happens that often. Mm. I don't agree with his profile, though, but you can never say. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, if this guy was never caught, then we don't know. We don't know what I mean, it could be that the psychopath thought he was 
sacrificing his victims to gain some kind of power. Maybe he thought that way. We don't know. Yeah. So despite the show of force by all the midnight patrolling and rounding up of petty criminals every week, the stone man was never caught. And with the last victim discovered in September of 1989, the stone man just vanished into the night. So this was a very short stint for him in Kolkata. I think over a period of just six months, he killed seven people in Kolkata. Jeez. If you believe that it was the same serial killer in Mumbai as well as Kolkata, his official victim count would be 19. Over the course of five years. 1985 to 1989. Yeah. Oh, four And then years. he just stopped. So, so usually when crimes like this cease to happen, it, it could be either because the perp is deceased in jail or just kind of went dormant for reasons unknown, like that of Eurons or even BTK who stopped completely. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't know. Since we never caught him, we have no idea what happened. Or if, or if even for that matter, if there was a stone man. What do you think? You still convinced it's one guy? I'm still convinced it's one guy, but uh, the homeless population of Calcutta took care of it. Or, or police took care of it. Or they were like, you know, we don't have enough proof it was this guy, but we know it was this guy. So we're just going to take care of it. Wow. Maybe they did that. And I... I can't officially endorse vigilante justice, but if they did that, well, think, yeah. you know, hats off to them. <laughs> right. Like I, of course, absolutely. Like never, I do not support vigilante justice, but also I do support people not killing people. So exactly. greater good exactly. question mark. Yeah, no, it's yeah. Big picture, big picture. I think it worked out. Whatever happened. It may have been possible that the people on the streets kind of took care of business themselves because there was there was systematic ignorance and apathy on the part of the officials for a very long time. And so they may have figured, you know what, we got to take care of ourselves. And to highlight that, I'm going to quote uh, N.C. Bhattacharya, who was a police officer in charge of Kolkata's downtown uh, station house. He was quoted as as talking about the street dwellers who were mostly migrants from other states. He said, these people are just lunatics and madmen. So many lunatics in Calcutta, just like the stone men we are searching for. Lunatics. All of them. Lunatics. That, that's so frustrating. So in his eyes, the killer and the victims were the same. He didn't care about either. That's awful. I don't know if he meant something else by it, but I mean, we have to take him, take his words at face value. So it kind of, it in my eyes, this shows the apathy of the times for the victims. Mm-hmm. And on the, on the other side of the coin uh, lie the helpless community who are living with abject fear for their lives and their families every single night. So Ramdas, a railway porter in Kolkata, is quoted as saying these solemn words. Why are the gods so angry with us? We are so poor. We have nothing to eat. My baby has a fever and we have no place to go. Now there is a madman trying to kill us. What have we done to deserve this? That's so sad. Yeah. So sad. People who have nothing and nowhere to go. I mean, 
It's it's just so sad. They really must have felt completely helpless. Especially with the police or people who are supposed to protect them not doing that. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like the system failed them and continued to fail them on so many levels. Yeah. But like I said earlier, I wouldn't completely blame the the police for not catching this killer either because of the circumstances, right? Because of how unpredictable the location of these murders were, right? Now, the cities, the streets of uh, Mumbai and Kolkata, there are so many twists and turns and dark alleys and, you know, little nooks and corners where, where people lay down for the night. It would be virtually impossible for the cops to monitor every single Yeah, but it also you know, sounds like they didn't really try that hard. I mean, if this was in the 80s, like there like there were camera systems in the 80s. There were, you know, stakeouts people could do. There were traps you could set. It just seems like it was like they did the bare minimum. At least like that's what it's sounding like right here. I mean, keep in mind, I have not looked this up, but like it does sound like they just did the bare minimum and called it a day. So from what I'm reading online, it seems like the Kolkata police definitely did a whole lot more um, than the Mumbai police did. So I would give them a little more credit. They did yeah. deploy like hundreds and hundreds of constables to patrol the streets at night. And I think, you know, some effort is better than no effort, even if they, it was for show or whatever. But yeah, and they had they had less murders overall and it was th- mm-hmm. a shorter time stint. So so I guess whatever they did do maybe deterred the guy or, or mm-hmm. yeah, he left or stopped or whatever. But he saw the show of force and he that was enough to stop him. So I'd give them a little credit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so 1989 was the last time the stone man was seen in Kolkata. Now, there have been reports as recently as 2013 that stone man-like killings popped up in the city of Kolapur in the state of Maharashtra. And I think there were like 12 victims in Kolapur as well. Same victim profile, same MO, you know, rock smashing the heads of, of people sleeping on the streets. Mm, I would say this one would have to be a copycat, though. Just mm-hmm. because 30 years later, like, this guy was already an adult. That would put him in his 60s. Like, if he was, like, 30 when it happened, like, I don't know. I feel like the anything that happened more recently would have to be a copycat. So you want to know something of what the Kolapur police came up with? Since the killings mostly took place around um, the railway station in Kolapur, they put up this mannequin. They put up this mannequin right outside the station next to, you know, a couple of uh, shops. And they put these raggedy old clothes on the mannequin. And their plan was that this mannequin would trick the killer into attacking and that's how they would trap him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, did it work? No, no it didn't because it looks like a mannequin. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Who would do that? You know what though? They tried, I guess. <laughs> like I'll give you a did B they? for effort. <laughs> Oh, man, I just burst out laughing when I read that because I was like, who are they fooling? They watched Home Alone and thought it was a great idea. 
Can you just imagine that poor mannequin standing there like, oh, my God. But also it was standing. They didn't even put it laying down. Like, come on. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was laying down. But if there was a cop sitting there at all times, like 24-7, maybe they had a camera, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at the mannequin. I couldn't find that bit of information. But okay, okay. Now that I think about this calmly when I'm not laughing, maybe it was a good idea. Um, But it didn't work. They weren't able to catch him. And the killings did stop, but not until 12 more victims. So it seems to be a repeating phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So either copycats or or maybe it's the same guy. Who knows? He's a really strong, out. really strong old serial killer. Hey, you, it's important to stay physically active as you age. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe he did. Stop killing. We don't. Yeah. Want also, murder. like, yeah, the, like, don't kill people. Don't kill people. Killing is bad. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty much it. That was the Stone Man murder. So, question. All right. And I know in the U.S. at least, it's it seems like for a while, movies and books were made about serial killers. So, mm-hmm. were there any movies made about this guy? Uh, yes. So there were two movies made about this case. One is called The Stone Man Murders. As you would expect, this movie is um, about half and half fiction and reality. So the, the the person who made this movie, I think his name is Manish Gupta. And he says that his work of art, so to speak, is 40% uh, truth and 60% fiction. It is a really engaging movie. It is a good movie. I mean, I've, it, I've watched this. I was going to ask, like, is it a good movie? Like, yes, is it, it is. Worth it's a, a good watch? movie. And it will give you a better idea of uh, about the th- tantric ritual, you know, the creepy part that I was talking about earlier. It will, it will give you a good idea because they explore that in detail as well in that movie. So take a look. I, I, I highly recommend this movie. I hope you enjoyed listening about this creepy serial killer katie (laughs) i did that was very fascinating to learn about i'm gonna have to watch this movie i'm not gonna lie it is available on amazon prime and if you don't have prime i'm pretty sure you can find it on youtube all right so let's i guess that's the end of this episode uh thank you so much katie for being part of this journey. I hope I was able to answer at least some of your questions. And yeah, thanks for sharing your, Mm -hmm. like the story with me. Thanks for (laughs) telling me a story. It's, it was depressing Mm -hmm. and awful, but you know, Mm -hmm. I learned something. Well, I'm glad I could, I could bring this story to you. All right, guys, that was the Stone Man Murders. I really want to thank Katie for coming along on this journey. And I hope to have you back for another case, Katie. If you enjoyed this episode today, follow Crimes from the East wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'll see you again next week right here at Crimes from the East, your weekly dose of criminal masala and spice. Namaste. Namaste.